Ladies and gentlemen, it is the Sopranos Podcast, Season 3, Episode 7, Blood Money. One thing you can never say that you haven't been told. That's a quote by Dr. Krakauer in this episode, Season 3, Episode 7 of The Sopranos, entitled Second Opinion, written by Lawrence Connor and directed by Tim Van Patten. This is a hell of an episode for a reason that I think we discussed a little bit in our pre-chat, guys, is that um, there's this is a great episode in its depiction of life in that we're dealing with serious subject matters here. Divorce, loyalty, blood money, cancer, and yet the episode is still filled with humor. And, and you know, that's life is, is these moments of laughter and levity in the face of unbearable tragedy and sadness. And this is a very melancholy episode, but also one that I was smiling through a lot, if that makes sense. I want to hear your I want to hear your first thoughts. Let's go around and give initial impressions of second opinion. Yeah, I think you started off by saying this quite well. It's it's um at its front kind of a bleak episode, it's dealing with some dark topics, but as the Sopranos is uh really quite good at, it's got a nice light touch. It finds moments of real humor. And um I, I actually I, I'm so often struck by the writing in this show. I just thought the pace of this episode was so good because it's dealing with essentially three disparate plots and just the way that it artfully goes from one to the other and does this this really nice transition work is is really great. It's very watchable. And uh, yeah, a really good episode I think I enjoyed a lot more than I thought I would when I realized, oh, we're going to be sort of beleaguered by... Um, you know, Junior's illness, which is very depressing. Uh, Carmela and Tony's marital problems, likewise, very depressing. And also this thing going on with um, <laughs> Christopher and his, I don't even know what you want to say, his probationary period in, yeah. into, the, into the mob. I, I don't know. Uh, but quite funny, really runs at a nice clip and uh, quite a moving episode as well. I agree. It's a compelling episode. It's very well executed it really makes nice use of Tony, I noticed. Particularly because he's not the main character in any of the three major storylines. But I think because of the nature of the story and his character, the way that he looms large, he has a very important effect on each storyline. And I agree, it's it's got some bleak elements and outlook, but it has that Sopranos light touch. It is very funny. And again, very lifelike. And I think, in effect, this episode is offering kind of a second opinion on Camelot and this mythos that the characters have, either of their own lives or, in the case of Junior, um, the mythos of uh, John Kennedy and what that means and how he relates it to this doctor who's kind of an arrogant, self-serving shitbird like the gangsters are. Uh, and the most important confrontation with the much more substantive doctor is the one that Carmela has. We'll get to that scene in the episode, most important scene in Carmela's trajectory up to this point, I think. Yeah, well said, Paul. It's it's such a funny thing coming off of university, by the way, that we have this storyline with this doctor giving very blunt advice to Carmela. But oddly enough, in this particular episode, when when the doctor points out Tony's grievous misdeeds and how irredeemable he is. 
I find Tony almost heroic. That's the beautiful irony of The Sopranos is what Tony is doing in this particular episode sure. as relates to Dr. Kennedy. I'm rooting for him 110%. It's such a fun Sopranos thing to do coming off of such a gross last episode to have Tony painted in this heroic light, especially when we're seeing the weight that this lifestyle has left on Carmela. We're going to talk all about it, but first I want to start with what I consider the C storyline. It has the least uh, screen time in this episode, but it's, it's very funny, funny stuff. I want to talk about this Chris, Paulie dynamic and this uh, probation. First of all, what a sad commentary on the modern state of the mob that uh, Chris, a newly made guy should be on top of the world, is subjected to this. Uh, we, we are introduced to this with a scene in the back of the bing, Chris and Paulie playing pool. Paulie stiffs him on a $60 bet which Paulie could probably pay a thousand times over, but he's just doing it to be a dick. <laughs> and then it, uh, it, it quickly degenerates into a humiliating exercise for Christopher. They make him strip down the check for wires. Silvio says New York opened the books, but they also laid it down. Newly made guys are subject to probationary period, which I guess it includes strip searching. What do we make of this in this uh, dynamic we're seeing with Chris and Paulie? Who, I mean, Paulie is Chris's direct boss. Can you imagine, you know, Jordan, your principal, or you know, <laughs> somebody asking you oh, to boy. strip down? Yeah. Well, hey, that wouldn't fly at school. Um, <laughs> um, I think I, I feel bad for Christopher. I don't think this guy has gotten to enjoy being made at any point. Uh, it almost seems like it's been the worse. Show's kind of shown us that. Yes. Uh, so we start with this uh, his making ceremony. Uh, which, you know, had the little Blackbird infiltration, this bad omen. He's felt like, I don't know, the fates have it out for him. And pretty much from that moment forward and kind of not doing as well as he thought he was going to do with the gambling enterprise and now being subject to these searches and feel, feeling disrespected by Artie Bucco and, you know, you know it, these things that have been happening to him. Uh, he, he does. You're right, Chris. He has it worse since mm. being made, not better. I think he's really feeling disenfranchised, disenchanted with the whole experience right now. So, um, and could you imagine having someone worse than Polly on top of you? Like <laughs> right. to be like the person that you're supposed to be looking up to in this in this life of gangsterdom. I mean, I guess it's better than being like uh, mentored by Ralph Cifaretto or something like that, but it's not <laughs> great. Polly's a real weird guy. Yeah. Good points all. I, I do find these scenes a little frustrating to watch not because the writing isn't good but rather because i think like you guys it's, it's difficult i feel a bit bad for chris what he's going through i also don't know exactly i want to stay away from spoiler territory here but just watching this episode alone i wonder what you guys think i wondered what is eating Polly, or is it something specific is it just a power trip because I don't think Chris has given him any reason to think that, say, Chris is a rat, but Paulie will still antagonize him and say, uh, you know, before I was busting balls, now you're starting to worry me. I think Paulie's like just completely full of shit, like most of these characters are. It's pretty distressing to watch, even though, as you guys said, this episode's got a light touch and there's really funny bits between these two. Yeah, yeah. You know what it is, Paul, and we'll talk about this scene in a few minutes in depth, but I think the root of it is what Tony touches on when Chris goes to him later, which is if I'm looking just on a basic level and trying to get like, what's up Paulie's ass, despite the fact that he's a quirky, you know, psychopath, 
is that <laughs> Chris is a fast riser and it's because he's Tony's nephew. I mean, he's not displayed any exceptional degree of competence to get to where he is. He's quote unquote paid his dues. I mean, he took a bullet for the family. He's demonstrated a basic level of loyalty to this thing, right? But he's a fast riser because he's Tony's nephew. And I think that eats at Paulie and a lot of the older guys as it, as it would in any line of work when the newcomers come in. It's, uh, you know, a seniority thing. For sure, yeah. So the next scene, Chris brings home two garbage bags full of Jimmy Choo's. Uh, they're size 10. Um, uh, Adriana's so happy, as any woman like Adriana would be at this uh, insane amount of beautiful shoes. Jimmy shoes are not cheap either. And, uh, you know, Chris, comically, we leave the scene on this note and we'll come back to it in a few minutes. They're size 10s. As Adriana says, that's Sasquatch size, Christopher. <laughs> uh, and I love the little exchange they have there where uh, he's like, where did I get 10 from? And she's like, yeah, where? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that that's funny. And then Chris uh, makes a little comment that's important here. Like, yeah, like I'm going to give that prick a full a fair taste or whatever, a uh, full share. And uh, so Chris, we, you know, we get the information that uh, Chris is perhaps holding out a little bit of his share uh, from Paulie, not telling him everything. Oh, for and, sure. Yeah, you know, it's like a waiter not declaring his tips kind of thing is how I interpret it. In spite of Paulie being such a prick, there's every reason it would seem that these guys should mistrust each other. That's what that mm. little information from Chris indicates is how complicated this world is. Correct. And we come back to this plot line with a hilarious scene that makes me laugh uproariously every single time. They're laying in bed. It has a very post-coitus vibe. It's like 2.30 in the morning, I think they mention. And uh, they're talking about ex-lovers. And uh, Bad idea. Bad, bad idea. <laughs> very bad idea, especially if your fiancé is Chris Moltisanti. But generally not a good idea uh, for most couples to at least go into the detail they go into here. And, uh, you know, whoever Beverly Pericchio was, Chris, Chris banged her once. And uh, for a whole summer, for a whole for summer. Whole, Good job, Christopher. <laughs> yes, wow. so a whole summer nice of work. a whole summer of Beverly Pericchio. But <laughs> don't mention, don't 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 mention the one time you blew Pen Gillette in a bathroom in Atlantic City. <laughs> I love that they. I love that they chose Pen Gillette. I think that's so funny. That's like yeah. the right level of random. Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's just the right level of believable, too. It wouldn't have been believable if it was like Tom Hanks. But, you know, Penn, <laughs> Penn and Teller, they come through AC all the time. And I, I am personally a big fan of Penn Gillette. So just the, the so imagery. Yeah, yes, me too. The whole vibe of that interaction is just very funny to me that they chose him. I bet Penn Gillette himself would get a kick out of this if he's seen it. Oh, I'm sure so. someone has told him and he probably loves it. <laughs> probably is, saw the episode. Everyone was watching this show. Yes, yes. So I just found that very funny. And then, of course, he calls her once he gets more details of what happened. He calls her <laughs> a low-life contour. And, uh, <laughs> and they get into like this ridiculous slap fight <laughs> in the fucking bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> you Kristen, know, why... What, no one should have this conversation. It never leads anywhere good. You know, I don't just, just skip it. Don't go through all. Don't comb through your past lovers with your significant other unless there's a very particular reason. This is not a fun game to play at 2 a.m. Paulie shows up. I love Paulie's delivery here. 
when first of all, beautiful shot of there's just that silhouette of Chris with the gun. I love that shot. That image has always stuck with me. And then uh, it's Paulie. Oh, op- uh, what does he say? Uh, open up, dickhead. And uh, Chris opens up. This is 2 a.m. Paulie. And Paulie's delivery of this line. I, I use it in my daily life still. Yeah, it's an outrage. <laughs> as, he <just> stro- <laughs> as he just strolls in, sees the shoes. You don't mind if I take my taste now, do you? Adriana comes out. So Chris is being, this humiliation continues except now it's much worse because it's happening in front of his fiance and she's watching Patsy pack up these shoes. And Chris is like, I don't know. I have to be now, if I'm going to, now I have to go into my own pocket if he's going to replace them. And uh, he catches a glimpse. I think Chris, despite his impetuous nature makes the right call in not telling Adriana what just happened. But uh, Paulie takes a moment to sniff a pair of her panties. Chris sees it. And we just get that quick zoom shot of him saying, you know, as he says, motherfucker, it's simmering. It's getting worse. Eight asks him what? And he just says nothing. So. <laughs> yeah. Paulie, Paulie way over, way over the line here. I, I realized Chris, Chris couldn't do anything to him in that moment for many reasons. Um, actually for the same reason, Tony really shouldn't have gone after Ralphie, but um, it's uh, yeah, that's fucked up. That's some fucked up shit. You yep. would, you would, you would have a big fight with a friend over that if they did that to you. Yes, yes, correct. <laughs> so Chris does what he feels, and by the way, what he was told to do at his making ceremony, uh, which is go up the chain. You have any problem, you talk to this guy right here. He goes to Tony. The next time we see Chris, he's talking to Tony at a car wash, and he's complaining, and Tony's poking fun at him. Yeah, I heard he strip search you. It gives a little pinky. He's kind of laughing, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, Chris says, I'm serious. He sniffed her panties. That seems to be the thing that gets Tony to acknowledge. Uh, OK, that's you know, that's over the line. But Tony's on board with the hazing and he tells Christopher, you're climbing very fast. Why do you think that is? Are you going to say it's because I'm your nephew? Yep. So suck it up. He gives him the hey. You know, you're you're a trainee here. You're a page. You're a you're going to kind of be the shit boy for a little while. Buck up and deal with it. Uh, but what do we make of this interaction and, and what Tony tells him and. Uh, this little moment here. Well, yeah, I think I think Chris, you know, whether he takes umbrage to the fact that, you know, Tony implies that it's because he's his nephew that he's risen so far. I mean, that's that's totally true. And the mere fact that they can have this kind of conversation in the manner they're having it is because he is his nephew. So Chris perhaps should consider acknowledging his own privilege in this regard, that his relationship with Tony gives him certain allowances that maybe the other guys don't have. And perhaps his hazing is a little more severe or a little bit more uh, oppressive because of that. You know, I, I don't think Chris necessarily understands that cause and effect. And I think Tony is right to highlight it in that scene. That's an interesting, you just brought up an interesting question. Would this be going on as harshly if it weren't Chris? Oh, I, I, mean? I think not. I think not. I think there would be a hazing process. There would be like a check-in and, a, and an evaluation system. But if this was an older person, someone who'd been around longer, really paid their dues, wasn't just a favorite of Tony's, I, I don't think Paulie would treat them the same way or that anybody else would necessarily. I mean, the whole episode is exposing a lot of hypocrisy. I think that, as Jordan mentioned, Chris has this privilege. Chris also doesn't like that Paulie like, sniffs his girlfriend's panties, which is admittedly really disgusting. 
Um, the next time he and Polly have a confrontation, it's after Christopher has been banging some girl at a hotel. Yeah. So that shows how much he respects Adriana. <laughs> and I think that, you know, you're seeing this throughout the episode, sort of culminating in, in another storyline where Carmela is, of course, the character who confronts a lot of the bullshit in this. I think, you know, the whole world is full of shit with these characters. Like, of course, Chris has a legitimate beef but of course you know they're daring him to say something about it right it's like hey suck up even if you have a legitimate problem um it doesn't look good for you to complain about it um it's not i don't think it's really sustainable uh chris doesn't like it obviously um and and, and then in the last beat it's it's appropriately absurd what brings them back together yes yes let's get into that in a second tony does confront paulie about this outside the bing about the hazing and paulie's kind of no selling it and then tony asks, did you sniff that girl's panties <laughs> and uh you know there's kind of a older brother vibe here like paulie did you really do this come on man like you know you don't get a sense that Paulie's in any grave danger here, but right. Tony Tony sees this as perhaps a step too far and steps in. He told you that fucking baby. Paulie's mad. He was he was told that, <laughs> and then he drops this amazing line. You know, he tells him, "I'm not apologizing." Uh, and so he says, "It's the kid's fiance." And Paulie drops this line, which ends the scene because where else do you go from this? As of the wedding day, anything that touches a pussy is off limits. <laughs> which as, uh, as far as as far as wise guy rules go i guess is makes as much sense as any <laughs> sure i do like that paulie doesn't lie i like that he immediately cops to like oh he told you that like he doesn't deny it like yeah you know, yeah that was that felt good i mean yeah. not what he did that he admits it you know again and, and going back i mean this is obviously a much less extreme example but as far as the value of women and respecting them it's less again no, you know, it's like sniff because he admits it so openly. It's like, oh, sniffing a girl's panties, not the end of the world. The problem is that it's Chris's fiance, <laughs> right. you know, right? Yeah, it's exactly. like sniffing a panties. Oh, that's normal behavior, but yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody does that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I want to quickly touch on a scene that happens speaking, earlier in the what, Paul? Speaking on what Jordan said at the beginning about the episode's light touch at the end of this scene, which is already funny. I think the last line actually is anything that touches her pussy is off limits. Watch the way Gandolfini just reacts to that. No lines, just his face. Yeah. So funny. Again, that big brother kind of thing like, oh man, this guy has a lot to deal with. (laughs) But I got to protect him. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny the way uh, Tony, Tony, it, it tells a lot about Tony and Paulie's relationship. Like Tony knows how weird Paulie is and that, uh, we all have like a friend or two that does things that we all find strange, but you put up with sure. it because it's like, well, I guess that person is just that weird. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I do want to touch on a, a scene that happens earlier in the episode because it comes back and it doesn't actually plug into any of the three major plot lines. It's kind of a separate story thread that's happening throughout the whole season. But at one point in the episode, Tony goes back the bing and is in the back room the office and uh confronts something that and i remember these these this was huge back in 2001 2002 the big mouth billy bass it was this 
silly little uh, toy, I guess, novelty item. Yeah. Yeah. And these Chris, things are all Chris. My dad had three of them. He had three three of these fucking big mouth belly bass things. He had one in his truck. My dad notably is a truck driver, right? He had one in the home garage and he had one in his home office. I couldn't escape this fucking thing. Yeah. Uh, My parents were uh, fully divorced at this point and I had one at each house. So (laughs) (laughs) I feel you. Yeah, these fucking things are everywhere. Drug stores, Walmarts, grocery stores. Uh, so this was like viral before viral was a thing in a way, uh, just one of those hot trends, like Tamagotchis and, and yeah. you know, <laughs> Oh man, you know what? Do they still make these? Can we still get, can we get one? The big mouth Billy bass? Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if they're still around. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check that. Hold on. Listeners. If you want to send the Sopranos podcast, big mouth Billy bass, we, uh, we'll, we'll mention your name on the show. We'll do a plug for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they, they are still around um, oh my god i think i need one I, for my office i think it has to happen i don't know that they're making new ones though because the price looks a little inflated i'm seeing them for around 60 bucks 55 bucks oh no that is uh, that is too much for that <laughs> but it's a, i'm looking at the box here the singing sensation take me to the river <laughs> oh that's so great i would pay 20 dollars and no more i think <laughs> so tony sees this thing and uh you know, the guys are enjoying it. And at first, Tony has the same reaction anybody normal would have, which is, oh, that's that's kind of funny. It's playing music. But then when the, the, there's a there's a very wonderfully acted moment where the fish head comes off the board and looks right, looks you right in the eye to keep to sing. Take me to the river. And um, Tony just is Broop, and we get taken back quickly. I wonder if hindsight's always 2020 i wonder if this moment would have read if they didn't flash back to the dream but uh i i thought it was very funny that it reminds tony of the dream he had before killing big pussy where the you know and he sees the fish head and yeah uh, yeah i don't always like when they hand us the flashback to remind us right i, I do i do well you know we have to remember also and i i know the listeners probably feel this way too some people watching the show are watching it more casually than we yeah. are, or or there's a certain you know class of viewer for the show that is really intently watching and would have picked up on that reference regardless. Yeah, I don't I don't love that we flash back to Tony's dream sequence specifically because that's a that's a weird flashback to justify because it's like how often do you remember a dream you had some time ago a specific image I don't know it's it's entirely right. for the audience but I guess that's fine. I th- I think the show nine times out of ten more than many other shows gives gives the audience enough credit to not do something like this you know so i try to put myself in their shoes i'm sure there was actually discussion about it because to me it would have been almost more eerie if tony almost didn't piece it together but it made him feel uncomfortable and he wasn't sure why and then reacts to it and then the audience can piece together like oh it's because of the fucking fish stream but we also have to remember now we're in the era of of streaming and binge watching and also at the time, not only is it that people are watching it a little bit more casually than we are not dissecting it on a literary level, but also there had been a year or so between. So it's kind of, a, they probably okay. decided, yeah, yeah. they probably decided it was more valuable to just quickly remind the audience of why this is affecting Tony. I get why they made the decision. It's brief too. It's, they do it nicely, I think pretty deftly, as is the whole of the sequence. Uh, we see how upset Tony is and how he's been reliving a trauma through and how he killed his best friend. 
so it's dark, but as Chris said, it's got a light touch in this sequence. It's funny. He walks out and he starts yelling at Georgie, who brought it in. Yeah. And he says, what do you think that is? A fucking playroom back there? <laughs> Literally just came from the back where Silvio and Furio are playing cards. Yeah. Uh, and he says, that's an office. This is a place of business. Like Georgie is disrupting the integrity of the Bing with a talking fish. Yeah. It's ludicrous but we know why Tony's going through it. And we're ahead of the we're ahead of the characters, which is fun, too, because the ending shot is Silvio and Furio looking at each other like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. I love, um, again, a little slapstick humor here where Tony reaches to go grab the fish and then the motion detector goes off and it, it starts because that thing had a motion sensor when you would walk by it, you know, on the, and right, then Tony yeah. goes to, and then his hand like pulls back and then he angrily grabs it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just that that's, that's classic slapstick. That's very funny. Uh, I thought this was well done. This is um, this beating Georgie in, in the front room of the Bing is <laughs> in front of everybody is becoming a tradition on the Sopranos. Yes, this guy has suffered so much abuse. <laughs> Already with an eye patch okay. off of what Ralphie did to him. <laughs> right. Georgie's having a tough month. Yeah. <laughs> He's so simple, too. I feel bad for Georgie. But anyway, the reason I brought this up now is because we, we come back to the big mouth Billy Bass in this last scene. Chris is leaving a, this last scene for Chris. Chris's storyline. Chris is leaving a motel. He's already dipping in the hooves. I don't pay for it. I don't know if I believe him, whatever. Mentions the shoes. <laughs> Paulie also got his Gumar's size wrong. I yeah, I don't know what's going on with that. It's very funny, though. Yeah, I don't know why she was a size 10. Well, because, I, you know, I don't know. I think if you ask, I, I'm i madly in love with my wife. I've been married to her for several years now. We've been together more than a decade total in our relationship. I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what shoe size she is. So... <laughs> I guess that's huh. just kind of like a. Th I don't know if most guys off the street would know their woman's shoe size. So, yeah, uh, hmm, yeah, I guess that's the joke. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know why specifically size ten. I don't know why both men thought that. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll say in my long relationships, I typically do know their shoe size, but I, it's just a funny bit, regardless. I think. Mm. Yeah. And ignoring their women is the their misdeeds. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, then. Uh, Paulie mentioned just 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 kind of lays the threat down on Chris. If you go whine into the big man about stuff between you and me, we're gonna have a problem, my friend. And uh, he reaches right. into the back to pull out the big mouth Billy Bass. Chris has a gun on his ankle. It's a kind of a tense moment, and then out comes this fish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, these two guys laughing over this. It's kind of a weird moment that, like, you know, these guys are gonna be okay for now, but also like there is this underlying simmering going on between Chris and Paulie that I have a feeling we're not done with because this doesn't end terribly conclusively as far as this storyline goes. But yeah, so he pulls out the Billy Bass and they're laughing at it. Here's an interesting question. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it. Does Paulie know that this thing ticked off Tony? Like, did he hear from Silvio and Furio what happened and is giving this to Chris as kind of like a way to get get tony oh. annoyed you know um, what i mean like or or is this yeah. just an, is an innocent thing he's certainly heard that tony was not happy about this thing but i don't think this is a gift given to get chris in trouble or to piss off tony in some way i think honestly the other guys in a missing scene were probably like tony didn't like that thing we fucking love it i think they all went out and bought their own for their home garages and their home <laughs> offices and you know paulie's just been like hey look what i got you know i think he's just i think they're just enjoying this 
That's an interesting question, Chris. I hadn't thought of it that way. I just thought it was um, a typical Sopranos irony. They weren't at the bada-bing, so I don't think they heard about it. They didn't see the big mouth Billy Bass thing. Tony destroyed it when he smashed it over Georgie's head. And that's why Paulie says, we got to bring it into the club. Yeah. That's the second opinion. <laughs> so they don't know. Right. That's the fun thing about the Sopranos sometimes is they just, shit just happens. The characters don't have control over it. Right. And that's where we leave Chris and Paulie. So we're going to come back to that, I'm sure, at a different point. That This saga of Chris and Paulie is not over by a long shot. But um, let's move on to something a little bit more pressing in this episode. Uh, the way we start the episode is with Junior's surgery. We had this uh, interesting sequence that is both simultaneously disorienting and sad, but also very funny where Junior's counting down, they're putting them under and we get this little glimpse of the FBI harassing him and they promise, <laughs> they, yeah, they promise him a full cure. You know, uh, we get this little newspaper things, uh, star witness weds and Angie Dickinson. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I laughed so hard. Amazing. <laughs> that picture of junior at like a nightclub table with Angie <laughs> Dickinson, like at the Copa, you know, so yeah. fucking funny. Um, and then he's being rolled down the hallway and his, you know, you get the sense like, you know, his life is flashing before his eyes, uh, as he's kind of in and out of this haze, yeah. They're dropping a lot of quotes, Livia. Uh, we hear some Livia in there, some Junior, no. some Tony. We get the uh, infamous peppers and eggs. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Which another great nice. big laugh. Yep. Then we get to meet this Kennedy, Dr. John Kennedy. He's going to be a big character in this episode. Yeah. And my initial impressions of him were, I think, exactly what the show intended, which is, wow, I mean, this guy's a prick. He's he's cutting this guy. I understand that to a doctor, especially one at that point in his career, he's a little older, that your work becomes a little casual as you know, at some point you have to just be like, all right, got another certain, another surgery today, another, whatever. So I understand that it becomes something of a routine, but at the other hand, you like, you have somebody's life in your hands here and he's rushing the guy. Oh, I have something to do after he's thinking about whatever his next appointment is. The, uh, the guy who's he's asking, did we get a clean cut or not? And you get a sense that he was, his analysis was kind of clipped short and just to appease the angry surgeon, the guy just says, yeah, it's clean. And then Dr. Kennedy cleans up, goes out to the guys, tells Tony, took a tumor the size of a fist out of his stomach, but he's doing okay. We get a sense, oh, maybe this is going to go well. Tony offers him a, a favor if he ever needs one. Kennedy says, I'll keep that in mind. So thoughts on our introduction to Dr. Kennedy and, and where Junior is at this moment. For whatever reason, this actually most reminded me of the um, Coach Hauser incident from Boca. Um, I don't know if there's kind of like a intended symmetry here, but we see often on The Sopranos that the mob, uh, specifically Tony, has the opportunity to perform some justice where society would not otherwise punish this person. We have all dealt with cancer in our lives, uh, whether it's, you know, a, f a family member, a friend, it's it's the thing that is always kind of um, lurking in the background of our lives, this, this struggle with this thing that we know that someday we will have or that a parent will have or a loved one. Uh, and you hope that you're in the best of care and that you have a doctor that really cares about you. But unfortunately, many doctors are like Dr. Kennedy. Um, and he's a, he's a type, right? He's an archetype. It's um, uh, a handsome guy. You know, he's tall. He's probably in his 50s. 
Um, he's really cocky. He's arrogant. He's really smug, which is, you know, certainly a thing that accomplished surgeons can get to be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the value of Junior on this show is um, so multifaced. Um, but his role on the show has been, especially of late, to show us how difficult it is to age with dignity. Yeah. And and his his enemy on this show is that, you know, time is just taking more of his dignity away the longer he lives. He's a 72 year old gangster and a tough guy who probably should have died 30 years ago and would have been proud to do it. But he's forced to suffer the indignity of age, which forces him to come up against doctors like Dr. Kennedy. And so the show puts us as a viewer in an interesting spot where we all say, wow, I really relate to this. I had a doctor that I felt didn't give a loved one of mine a, a fair shake, and I wish I had someone like a Tony to intervene on my behalf. Um, we're meant to not like this man right away. And even that initial m meeting with Tony where he says, hey, we removed this tumor the size of a fist, and Tony Tony takes his own time to say, hey, listen, if you ever need a favor, indicating like, listen, you know who I am, anything you want, say the word. Kennedy is so dismissive of Tony, someone who in society is like, the most prominent boss of the area mob family and is in the news and on the you know news broadcast constantly. And Kennedy is so smug and thinks so highly of himself. He just kind of like just even brushes Tony off. Like this guy doesn't have fucking time for anybody. And just as like a regular average Joe guy right away, you're like, fuck this doctor. I hope yeah. something terrible happens to this man. <laughs> yeah. I love that explanation. Also, he's got a bee on his hat. Um, so <laughs> Jordan, that is so well said. This character for me functions in a lot of ways. First, I think it relates to Junior's dignity and often his, like, frankly, his pipe dreams, as is reflected in the opening dream sequence where he weds Angie Dickinson. And the dream and the mythos in which this doctor actually gives a shit about him. So it's, it's perfectly set up that the guy is good at what he does, but he also thinks very highly of himself. Uh, as you said, he's smug. I think at one point, maybe when the surgery is ending and they're closing up, he uses this phrase, watch and learn, which he later uses when he's golfing. <laughs> yeah. Not, not good. And the other parallel that we're going to get to later, I think, is that we're going to get to the JFK thing but I think a big thing and maybe the biggest thing for this character in the parallels is that he is a Dr. K who is paralleled with the other Dr. K who, unlike this one, is not full of himself. He's not smug. He's not dismissive. He's not resentful. And it leads to a much greater confrontation. But between the substantive moral philosophy and accepting the pipe dream the characters on this show will always go for the pipe dream. Interesting. I love that analysis. Jordan, to, to what you said, as far as him being an archetype, you know what I actually, my mind flashed to when I was watching the episode, and this is such an odd thing because I don't necessarily always think of the Sopranos and comic books in the same kind of universe almost, but this uh, character of Dr. Kennedy, at least at this early stage, the arrogant surgeon, you know what it made me think of? And 
Doctor Strange. I was like, this Doctor is Doctor Strange. Strange before his accident transforms him into a yeah. good person mm-hmm. uh, yep. and humbles him. This is, but but it's exactly that archetype: the older man, little bit of salt and pepper going on in the hair, arrogant surgeon, always has something more important to do, even though his job is life and death. And the fact that they were able to pull that archetype and comic books are built on the heroic archetype. So I just thought that was an interesting thing. This is like, this is, you know, this he's basically Dr. Strange before his uh, transformation. Yeah. thought you would appreciate that. Um, sure. The next scene we get on this storyline is junior back in Kennedy's office for post-surgery. He's feeling good. I, I, I do want to, we're going to talk about the whole Car- Carmela's journey in this episode in more depth, but I just thought it was an interesting parallel. We get this first scene with Carmela going to Melfi by herself just before this. And then we get this junior scene right after with Dr. Kennedy, both uh, kind of initial appointments before they both venture off into their own respective second opinions. And Carmela criticized Melfi's art out in the lobby yeah, she likes the paintings, but that she doesn't care much for that statue. And then Junior is praising up and down without, you know, as if it's God's work. Uh, the pictures Dr. Kennedy took that they should be in National Geographic. I thought that was a funny little parallel that they were both uh, discussing the art and what was going on yeah. um, there. But Junior says he feels great. And Kennedy's like, that's good. That's all good. Uh, you know, but he explains that they didn't cut enough around the tumor and that there's still some malignant cells in junior's body. It's gone. I think it's spread. I think you mentioned some nodal involvement lymph. It's it's the cancer spread a little bit, perhaps more than he initially anticipated. Kennedy gets some kind of call or alert. And then uh, junior says, don't let me keep you doc. So junior's like in love with, uh, I mean, what a thing, you know, this is, this is your cancer and you're just, you, you feel like you're, you know, being an imposition on the guy and Kennedy, rather than a, a comfort him and say, yeah, no, of course, says, you know, I actually am a little bit backed up. Uh, ra- why don't we go ahead and book you? Not giving Junior a chance to really discuss this or question this, but he's not looking to discuss it or question it. Bobby asks one question about uh, whether or when he's going to be able to eat normal food again, to which Junior gives him a hilarious glance. But yeah, uh, you know, Bobby gets so he gets that awful look for asking that question. He gets berated for only asking one later. But I actually thought that was a good question. I thought it was even sweet. I mean, keep in mind, Bobby is in charge of like Junior's daily care. What Junior what Junior can eat is a big deal. I didn't think that was a bad question. I thought that was unfair. I agree. I think it's actually pretty deliberate, as you guys both mentioned. He's given a lot of shit to Bobby and he's giving so much leeway to Kennedy in the scene afterwards, I said to myself, was Bobby told ahead of time to read this magazine article? I doubt it. Yeah. Was he told ahead of time, ask XYZ question? Yeah. Of course not. Junior's just berating him now because the only other outlet would be questioning Kennedy. He's mm. not going to do that. Yeah. I love the phraseology here. You tell me to take a crap on the deck of the Queen Mary. An hour later, they're hosing it down with disinfectant. <laughs> oh, God. So fucking fu- beautiful imagery there. They really give Junior. A beautiful uh, imagery, yeah. <laughs> so he's scheduled for another round of surgery. And the scene where he berates Bobby on that question that we just discussed happens immediately at, upon leaving the doctor. He mentions this magazine, latest issue of Seniors in Health. So he brings someone with you to ask questions. You ask one dumb fucking question about my diet. 
Uh, I think Junior just believes it's selfishly motivated. Bobby's the fat guy, so they're going to do the fat joke, right? And, uh, you know, he's asking because he, you know, maybe he can't eat what he wants to eat because of Junior's diet. So I think that's where. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I think that's where Junior's coming from on that. Yeah. But, yeah, all it's it's not an appropriate question. I think it's just suspect to Junior because it's coming from Bobby. Uh, <laughs> but I believe the next time we see Junior, he's mixing the shake and what a pitiful display. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, but he, he adds a little bit more milk to make whatever the fuck this shake is palatable. And in doing so, he forgets to put the lid back on. It fucking goes everywhere. Junior has just had it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's wiping himself off. Tony comes in. Uh, did, did they see you come in here? Cause I need being remanded to the prison hospital. Like I need a fucking case of crabs. Tony, you know, I came up through the cellar like always. Tony tells him he looks good. Junior says, if you're going to lie to me, tell me there's a broad out in the car wants to tongue my balls. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's just a phone call away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Junior, Junior, Junior. They, they, get, they, they really do give him the best lines. Tony proposes a not unreasonable idea here, especially given how taken Junior is with Kennedy. You know, maybe you should get a second opinion, which is not. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which yeah. even if even if it wasn't this prick doctor that we don't like, it's still a good idea, especially when you have cancer that is particularly aggressive. And uh, J- Junior is just too superstitious about Kennedy. He's 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 too wrapped up. He doesn't want to hear it. Bobby comes in. Uh, I love this. How many White Castle did you have? <laughs> so Bobby is sneaking off to get White Castle. Uh, <laughs> and he says, I can smell them. but. Junior, Tony is able to, the, the long and story short of it is Junior, Tony is able to convince Junior to go with him to Sloan Kettering to talk to this Dr. Maida over there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Sloan Kettering is known as, Tony mentions it in a future scene, it's one of the best cancer hospitals in the entire world. Tony's willing to take him there. Junior says, people come in from the city to see Kennedy. Tony drops good. We won't be fighting traffic. Tony always, uh, Tony knows just what to say to him. What was that, Paul? Great line. I love that line. I don't know why. Just that one liner. Good. So we won't be fighting traffic. I don't know. Yeah. No, it, it gets Junior to kind of consider it. And, it's, and then he invites Tony along. All right. But come along to ask questions and, you know, be there with me. And, you know, to Tony's credit, I know he and Junior have had their issues. Tony's 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 with him on this. Yeah. So Tony agrees to go and Tony's going to take care of him. But then we get this little button scene. Again, more great Junior lines coming. Junior expresses suspicion once Tony leaves and Bobby's like, what do you mean? And Junior says the line, think on this burger boy. Uh, Anthony is a cunt hair away from owning all of North Jersey. And I am that cunt hair. First of all, again, more hilarious potty mouth imagery with Junior, but (laughs) Junior is not only suspicious this old Italian superstition thing is just all over the place with this guy because he's not only suspicious in the positive for Kennedy, he's thinking cynically about Tony's motivations here, even though I get nothing from Tony that he has any mal ill, Ill intent uh, in regards to this. Uh, ironically, I think that as Bobby points out at the end of the scene, uh, all this cynicism, it can't be good for you. Yeah. Generally that is junior's problem here his rosy-eyed optimism about the one doctor is the problem. Actually, him thinking that Tony is trying to get him out of the way seems like more pipe dreams 
and mythos, frankly. Tony isn't a cunt hair away from anything. Tony does run North Jersey because Junior's nuts have been cut off. Again, is Junior's dignity such that he needs to hang on to this? He's not in charge of anything. So I don't even know what the shit he's talking about. Again, I think, as Chris, you said, it's that superstitious thing. It's a natural mistrust. But his junior skepticism is just poorly placed in this case. Yes. So we get this meeting at Sloan Kettering. Junior seems non uh, unimpressed here. And he speaks openly to Tony about that. See, with Kennedy, you don't get these maybes, possibilities. Cut you open. Over. Done. In and out. And uh, this doctor is basically giving a very realistic diagnosis, much different vibe than Kennedy. He's being very blunt. Perhaps this doctor could use a lesson in bedside manner, but otherwise he's, he seems to be giving him very honest and realistic advice. It's like, you know, we're going to do, we would do this chemo, which Junior wants to avoid, who the hell can blame him, and could still end up going through the horrors of chemo, which anyone in the world who has had anybody with cancer go through chemo knows how awful that is. Of course. You, you're essentially killing your body just enough to kill the cancer, but hopefully not kill you. That's what chemo is. And uh, Junior, at this age, at this point in life, uh, doesn't want to go through that. And then he may still end up having to get the surgery that Kennedy was going to do anyway. So he's questioning Tony, but Tony is, you know, trying to get him to at least consider it. Uh, They have that little (laughs) scene uh, in the hallway going to the elevator where (laughs) I love this little exchange. What about Hoff and the team's this obsession of Kennedy? What about Hoff and the Teamsters? And you know, we get a little pause, and Junior's only response is, That was the brother. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was the Bob, brother. Yeah. Of course, Bobby Kennedy, who was a pain in the ass uh, for as far as a mob guy or anyone related to the Teamsters Union uh, can, can attest to, were not fans of, of the brother. <laughs> I wanted to ask your guys' opinion on it because I think historically, gangsters have had this view of the Kennedys having to do with Hoffa that they don't particularly like him and all that. But was Junior's association with Kennedy more how working people responded to the Kennedys as if the Kennedys were like them in some way and it relates to his dignity? I not was just, just wondering about- Not just his dignity, there's something else that's important. And again, in, we're I think society, at this point in America is less religious than ever before. The data bears that out. Less people go in the church. I think uh, the amount of people who regularly attend religious ceremonies dipped under 50% this year for the first time ever. Sure, a lot of that had to do with COVID, but it was a big deal to have a Catholic president at that time. And that's one thing the Irish and the Italians had, had in common, especially back in the day, was that the Catholic thing. So I think there was this kind of work, even among perhaps people like Junior, there was this kind of working class connection with Kennedy for that reason. And then, of course, the assassination. What mobster can't identify with someone who, uh, you know, fucked up and got whacked? Yeah, there's also a there's a generational thing going on. Um, My grandmother, who was like classic Italian grandma, was obsessed with JFK and wanted every book about JFK and Camelot and Jackie and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think Junior, uh, his, you know, his idolization of JFK and his association with this doctor, it, it does harken back to the greatest generation and their sort of obsession with the Kennedys and, and the beloved nature of that family, JFK in particular. So yeah, there, there is something to that, to the fact that he was Catholic, to the fact that it was kind of like Irish and Italian unity for once because of the Catholicism, because of JFK's like sort of known ties to the mob. Um, yeah, I, th- I think Junior bears that out. 
Well said. Well said. Then we get this doctor council and uh, the scene where they kind of all the doctors who are involved in this on Kettering and of course Dr. Kennedy kind of get together to reach a consensus. I mentioned, you know, listen, this guy Lawrence Connor, who I saw the name at first when the credits came up, and I was like, oh, that's a name I've not seen on the show yet. Who is this guy? I think he, uh, while he penned a beautiful script all around, and I'm not saying this to any way denigrate the rest of the episode, I think he was brought in to write this doctor council scene because I think this guy Lawrence Connor has some kind of experience in the medical field or some kind of medical knowledge because he does a great job with this these doctors speaking this boardroom medical jargon, right? This is not an easy, yeah. I could, I could, I'm a writer. I couldn't sit down and write this scene without talking to somebody who'd been in a room at least. But I, I was kind of impressed with just how well they got that across. But the, the long and the long and short of it is that Dr. Kennedy is again, very cocky. Uh, you know, he, he kind of is schooling these guys on the odds of success with the chemo. And then all of a sudden they mentioned that uh, Junior went to see Dr. Maida. And rather than make it, again, more to Kennedy's character, rather than make an informed decision on Junior's treatment based on Junior, based on what's best for the patient, he scoffs because he's like, I'm not going to operate with that little shit looking over my shoulder. So his personal vendetta issue, whatever, with this Dr. Meta causes him to just say, "Eh, fuck it. All right, go ahead. Do the chemo then. I don't care. Uh, Awful, awful, awful guy. (laughs) If we uh, had any lingering like for Dr. Kennedy, it's out the window at that point, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, Junior's now in chemo. And we, we kind of go off of that meeting scene to Junior just moaning in agony as he's being injected uh, with the needle there. And, and uh, where's Dr. You know, he, I page Dr. Kennedy. Where the fuck is he? He's nervous. He's in anguish. Uh, and then the next scene we get to, Junior's home puking. Kennedy won't call Junior back. He sent him a box of Cohiba cigars. Still nothing. He's due for three more weeks of this. Bobby gives that line, these doctors, it's not like on TV. Very funny, mm-hmm. especially because we're watching this on TV. And Tony's there and he calls Kennedy. Tony is concerned at this point with what he's hearing. And he's, he basically lays it out, giving him benefit of the one last benefit of the doubt. He calls him, leaves a message. This is Tony, boss Tony. He's using his boss tone. And, uh, you know, call me anytime, day or night. And hangs up. So... Junior's now in this predicament. Any thoughts on this, this scene and, and how things are going with that? I appreciate uh, Tony uh, looking after Junior. It's actually very sweet. Um, yes. I know that despite what's gone down between them, uh, sorry, rather, uh, despite what's gone down between them, it's 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 sweet to see him caring for him in this way. And also Tony, for you know, perhaps for the first time, is is reconciling with the fact that this doctor is shitty. And maybe his instincts with him were a little bit correct when they had their their parting here. And yeah, Tony's getting ready to enact some of that gangster justice we so like because we have all had that doctor with our really sick family member that we can't get a hold of, right? We're advocating for a loved one and the doctor will not fucking call us. I think we've all been there or we know someone who's been there. I think that it's interesting to see Tony move into this space. And I also really like how the ironies work here. It seems to me watching this episode what ends up undoing junior at least in this respect with dr kennedy is that kennedy himself being a self-serving shitbird actually seems to believe some of his own mythos as junior does and so he doesn't like being questioned 
He doesn't like being challenged. He resents that Junior went to this uh, to get a second opinion from this other doctor, maybe resentful of Sloan Kettering being the, quote, legit, uh, end quote, cancer hospital. So I like how that all comes together and then how finally Tony takes action with, uh, as Jordan said, gangster justice. And what a scene it is. I wrote, I wrote, my God, is this dot, 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 heroic behavior? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's using his gangster thuggery that we've come to know as far as his tactics are concerned. But boy, if there was ever a deserving target of this kind of intimidation, uh, you know things are going up a level. And I love the way, again, this is just speaks to how beautifully the show has established this character without being excessive. Yes, the scene where Furio comes in in season two is brutal and agonizing and hard to watch. But what a precedent that set because now it's at the point where you see Tony pull up with Furio and you know what that means. We don't ever have to see Furio be violent again. We know what it means when Furio shows up with on a job, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Tony pulls up with Furio and it's, oh boy, oh <laughs> boy, is this, how, how is this going to go? Yeah. And he fucking pulls up in a golf cart uh, <laughs> and uh, gets out with Furio, offers him a titanium club. I use it. It added 10 yards to my drive. Uh, Mr. Williams here, he refers to Furio as Mr. Williams, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, great, which no effort to hide his Italian accent. I, I was dying at that. Doesn't play. This is a stupid, a fucking game. Furio, with the, Furio has, a, has a lot of really funny lines here. Uh, he, he kind of begrudgingly accepts the gift as they're backing him slowly towards this lake. And they do it just enough to get his feet wet. And you can see that moment in the doctor's eyes. We've all had water soaked through our shoes. It's not a fucking pleasant experience. And uh, that's when he realizes, oh boy, I'm in, I'm in jeopardy here. Uh, yes, you're a member of the club. No, no, I just, I just, uh, I'm trespassing. Uh, and uh, they lay it on him. Take, answer his calls. Give that man the respect he deserves. He pulls out the Palm Pilot. They smack the Palm Pilot out of his hands. Remember it. This is cool. I was, you know, I know this is, thuggery 101 but i was all on board here oh hell yeah yeah we we, we can't wait to see. i i actually i i was wondering if they were going to hit him you know what i mean i, I was yeah. i was all about it i thought this was great it is the exact right level of intensity and yeah tony only breaks out furio when he wants a fucking hammer that's what that guy is you know yeah um super effective and we're going to talk about this more in another storyline in this episode in a few minutes but this is another example of tony really using just the right amount of power to make his point. He's, he, he doesn't go over the top. They don't beat him. They don't grab him and throw him in. They don't pummel him. They know just the perfect amount of intimidation to use on this doctor to get exactly the result they want. Tony is a good boss. Yet again, that's, that's kind of, he was a good son when Livia was alive. That's, that was a constant. And I think, you know, he, he makes mistakes, but Tony, Tony is good at this, thing, this kind of thing. He really is. Yeah. This also, this team also has Tony bringing a gift, and as Carmela did with the woman that she brought her a ricotta pie. So I guess there's some there's some aspect of plausible deniability, and also it it brings to bear that we can question the doctor's pretense. Oh, I can't accept it. 
but then they back him up a little bit and he does take their gifts again unlike the other dr k who refuses to accept blood money this guy is corruptible and so we, we can underline that in this scene another interesting moment it's very brief in the scene dr kennedy as if to throw his hands up at the whole thing says i'm just his surgeon that's all and tony actually reacts as if to say to himself yeah no shit but because junior has built this guy up in his mind tony's figured out that i have to take action and intimidate yeah. this guy into taking this action to make junior feel better it does work interestingly uh it to tony's credit it does it's the it's it's kind of gangster justice we like and it, it has the right effect yep paul i don't mean to interrupt you here but uh looks like you've got a b on a uet and yeah speaking to the desired effect this storyline closes out with uh kennedy coming to visit junior in chemo and he's all smiles see this is what's even more frustrating about kennedy is he knows how to be a good doctor he shows up i mean this is like this is the way any patient would want to be treated he's all charm how's this young man doing you know this is the guy i'd see absolutely and then gives junior his home phone number for future issues and junior is all smiles. And now, of course, speaking to the negativity and cynicism, this thing that Junior has been poo-pooing the whole episode, once he hears it out of Kennedy's mouth, his whole attitude changed. Sure, the chemo is miserable and unpleasant and not going to be fun, but at least Junior has been given the gift of optimism by his nephew, Tony, getting yeah. Kennedy to do this. Two, two things broke my heart in that scene. One is how short that scene is. It's this little thing that the doctor has to do. It's maybe 30 seconds yeah. to change this, you know, potentially dying patient's entire outlook, yep. right? So for this man to deign to speak with this patient for 30 seconds was really all it took. The home number, of course, is a nice touch, and that's something he only could have gotten because of Tony. But you would have hoped that any doctor in Kennedy's position would afford their patients that same dignity and respect. The other thing that broke my heart is Junior's look at the end of this scene. He gets his regal kind of sense of himself back. He has his bearing. He lifts up his chin. You can tell he's a changed man. And it's off of just the, such a small thing that, that mm. Tony had to fight to get. Uh, and again, you think that you would think that doctors would give this to all their patients, but unfortunately they don't because we live in fucking corrupt, awful murder world. <laughs> that's really well said jordan and to to bring up something that jordan has often in the past about how you know junior's dignity is so affected by his age probably should have died 30 years ago in this short scene dr kennedy calls junior a young fella twice right you taking good care of this young man that sort of thing yeah. <laughs> so yeah as we saw it's kind of it's it's sad to see how how it operates Yep. All this could have been avoided if Kennedy had just fucking done this a week ago, you know? But right. He's a prick. He had to learn He had to learn the hard way, like many characters in this show. Speaking of learning the hard way, let's get into our A-plot for this episode. Carmela, this, I have to just say off the bat, season three for the women in the show are is is astounding. These, 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 these you know, the amazing performance from Melfi in Employee of the Month the beautiful performance of Tracy in university. And now she's been largely supportive. The, the therapy scenes have been substantial, but Carmela has been largely support, supportive up to this point in season three. And she really has a killer episode, a lot of beautiful, sad 
acting going on. Uh, Edie Falco is a total queen, but let's let's get into this. The story starts on the domestic front with, uh, we find out AJ's going on a trip to DC. We get a Sunday dinner scene, always fun at the Sunday dinner. Uh, they're eating shkarol with balsamic. Everything today, <laughs> Q has that line about everything today being balsamic. My mother never heard of balsamic. Tony violates the rules of Sunday dinner. It's his busy season, right? Steps out. And uh, they have a very frank conversation with Carmela's parents. They certainly had uh, no lack of opinion on Livia, but uh, now they're getting into, we kind of see Carmela having a frank conversation with them about Tony. Mother says he has two speeds, moping or yelling. Carm's parents give each other this look when, Tony, when, when Carmela mentions that Tony's in therapy. Almost as if to say, well, what a shame that is. It's, it's the wrong attitude to have about therapy. They should be thrilled. But, you know, what a shame that it's come to this. Carmela picks up the vibe. They give him their, this Angela Stamford shit, as she says, this pharmacist, I guess, who had it for Carmela back in the day. And they have this very interesting argument, you know, about how the waters part for everybody, but Carmela earns it. They get a free pass by, by relation. So thoughts on this introduction to... Carmela here and, and the dynamic at play. So what? He doesn't need therapy. He prescribes his own tranquilizers. <laughs> Great line. This is a good line. Well, uh, I think this scene... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Paul. Uh, well, I just want to say briefly, I think this is a vintage soprano scene because the parents are, as Chris said, they have the uh, kind of an old school attitude about, I guess, everything from using balsamic in your cooking to therapy. And Carmela just owns them. She just dismisses yeah. everything. And Carmela can talk. Let's not have any equivocation on that point. So she knows how to steamroll right over her mother. Her dad, who is much more pleasant than her mother, also is hypocritical because he kind of wants it both ways to have a good time with Tony and not confront that Tony has helped him out in his career as well. But it's it's the Sopranos, so even though she just lays her parents to waste in this scene, I think what her mother in particular is pointing out obviously stays with Carmela because Carmela is pursuing something in this episode, trying to make her own life better. If these questions weren't still bothering her, why is she showing up to a therapy session that Tony is skipping? Why is she taking piece of paper with Krakauer's name all on it, even if she says that's not necessary. So every scene in some way, every really great scene should be about the opposite of what it appears to be about. I think this scene is an example where Carmela just tosses her parents' concerns aside, but obviously they stay with her. Absolutely. Yeah. And Carmela is alone in Melfi's office. We've been getting somewhat used this season to seeing Tony and Carmela together in therapy. It's been, I think this is the third episode now since Carmela has come into therapy, but she's by herself. They have this exchange about the statue, the art. I know you don't give Tony the silent treatment. Uh, is that what you think? I'm giving you the silent treatment. Great therapy dialogue reflects it right back at her. She's worried about Tony, quote unquote, mood swings. And she then she has uh, some very blunt dialogue here. Carmela is very good at towing the line of secrecy keeping the omerta, so to speak. But she, 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 first of all, then outs Tony for not just, he just didn't feel like coming today. Fuck that shit. 
was the quote. Shit, <laughs> you know, do you want to go to therapy? Nah, fuck that shit. I can hear Gandolfini saying it. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, he reports to a strip club who knows how he spends his days. Very evocative coming off of the episode University, where a very brutal murder happened at the strip club, amongst much other degenerate activity. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, and Carmela's really hurting here. Great acting. At one point, she just bursts into tears, but is fighting it. Uh, this is this is not easy to do. She's really hurting, and and I, I immediately feel very much for Carmela and what she's going through. And what's sad is Melfi can't really help her to the extent that she wants to, because Tony's her patient. And correct, yeah, yeah. Carmela is a means to help Tony, but she says, you know, you try living with that day after day. She also alludes to the fact that this this coworker that died. See, he didn't say garbage compactor, did he? schooling Melfi to read between the lines when Tony says things like that, which is very blunt and shocking to hear, I'm sure, for Melfi when she thinks about it. So this is a great scene. And she offers her Dr. Krakauer's number, a colleague in Livingston, a teacher of Melfi's. We're going to come back to that later when we get to that scene. But uh, she dismisses it. That, that won't be necessary. I just needed to vent, she says. Yeah, it's a it's a terrific scene. Um, it, I believe it's the first time we've gotten Melfi and Carmela alone in a scene together. So yeah, very kinda, ex- very exciting on that front. It it is exciting, and um, you have a moment as a viewer. At least I felt a little misdirected because there was a moment where I thought like, oh, is is Melfi going to take Carmela as a patient? Wouldn't that be a conflict of interest? And of course, there's the reference. And initially, I thought she was referencing. Uh, or sorry, referring Carmela to Elliot. Right. I thought that that was going to be the Dr. K we were going to be sent to. But of course, we are sent to actually an even better doctor that we'll get to talk to talk about <laughs> rather in a, in a moment. Um, it's a great scene. Uh, I feel terrible for Carmela. And I, I would love to remind the listener slash the viewer that, you know, Carmela and Tony being in a good place together, those moments are rare in the series. In fact, so much so that they really stand out. You know, um, you are my life, uh, you know, dinner at Vesuvio's at the end of season one, uh, you know, the fur coat, like the, the, the bright spots in their marriage are the rarity. Um, the kind of everyday moments with them is mostly Carmela having to manage Tony's feelings. She's had to do a lot of emotional work on her behalf, which has led her to be neglectful of herself, probably has made her not like herself very much. And we're finally seeing the comeuppance of Tony's neglect of her. Mm. That's really well said. I think probably as a kind of reflection of that, what Jordan was just talking about, this neglect of the self, Carmela is understandably oscillating in this episode between these different ideas and associations and how open she's going to be to therapy, to advice. Like Tony, it seems that at the beginning she's not particularly comfortable looking at that uh, nude statue in Melfi's outer office. And then I thought that discomfort with the particular nudity of that figure in the female form led to her body language in the therapy session reflecting it. Very tight, her legs tightly crossed, her fingers interlocked over her legs, over the knees, by the way, reflecting perhaps Melfi's recent injury. So she's fighting this in some way the whole way. But as Jordan said, there has been such neglect of self that something really needs to give here. She needs to explore these questions. She needs to ask these questions. And she does need counsel. 
Yes, great analysis, Paul. I agree fully. Next, we see Carm in the grocery store bumping into Angie Bump and Sarah. It's been a little bit. It's one of those characters at the end of season two. You wonder, oh, am I ever going to see her again? And here she is. And uh, this has to be a nightmare for Carmela to see this situation. You can understand why it would stick with her, especially with what she's going through. Angie expresses this, the idea that she's in somewhat dire financial straits getting by. They have, she's a sick poodle. It's going to cost $1,200 to get the surgery. Carmela invites her to dinner, little foot and mouth syndrome. Maybe we'll get lucky and Tony won't show. Whoops. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, yikes is exactly what I wrote on my notes yeah. when, when she said that. It's darkly funny, but it's also like, because her husband's certainly never going to show again. Yeah. But that scene is a very pretty quick beat in the scheme of things. And then we next get Tony and Carmela at home. I love scenes at home with them, just the two of them. They, they're always fucking great. Uh, yeah. Dinner's cold. That's why they invented microwaves for inconsiderate husbands. Uh, Tony pulling a move that I have pulled many times where I taste something cold. I'm like, oh, that's good. I'll just eat it like this, especially like leftover pasta. I love that way. Sometimes it's a, it's a thing. You guys into the cold pasta? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cold pasta. Listen, I, I am ashamed to say how many times I, especially as a kid living in my parents' house, like went into the fridge and found like the cold ziti. That was the best shit in the world where you were like, yeah. oh, I'm so I'm just going to eat this entire bowl of ziti and it's going to be cold <laughs> and it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Uh, but actually, so, so the other thing this episode does well, this scene especially, is like the neglect is so commonplace, mm. right, that he, it hardly needs to be acknowledged. It's, it's something that's like, yeah, it's a little punchline for Tony. Yeah, they made microwaves for neglectful husbands or for, you know, uh, inconsiderate husbands. Uh, uh, yeah. Tony, listen to what you're saying. Are you going to address this at any point, really? No. <laughs> yeah, he knows he's a shit husband right now. I think he and he always has a justification. Uh, you know, his excuse, I think, would be, well, it's football season. But it it's never really much better, is it? Yeah. This scene also, um, it, the way, way it takes place in the episode, it comes, it's sandwiched, actually, between the scenes with Chris coming home to Adriana. And Chris yeah. and Adriana are much younger, and Adriana's experience of being the mob spouse or the mob partner is very different. She's just starting to enjoy the dividends of this life. So that scene is dynamic, it's fun, it's sexy. And then you cut to Tony and Carmela, and it's cold, the dialogue is clipped, they're sitting on opposite sides of the table. It's not an accident. Yes, exactly. And uh, we get some information in the scene. Carmelo has been invited to have lunch with the dean. Tony won't go. He identifies it immediately as a shakedown. And then Tony puts on a theater performance, essentially, uh, in this uh, in this next scene. Tony puts on a show <laughs> where he uh, gets into this whole spiel about puss and ratting him out. And he gets this false anger. And uh, or I don't want to hear you know, ask him or, or, or he refers to his ungrateful cunt wife. And then Carmel has to repeat that back, his what wife? And Tony kind of gives that a, a second thought. So it's uh, it's something, but th th that's kind of where these two are at. This is what they're talking about on their romantic evening at home while AJ is in D.C. for on a school trip. But this is, you know, it's just kind of this bland conversation about the dean leading into Tony putting on a theater performance to justify his feelings on Angie Bump and Saro. Um, yeah. 
presumably this is brought on by the trauma of just that day seeing the talking fish. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. He was very upset by it. Carmela obviously doesn't know what to do with it. She doesn't know what his anger means in this scene. So as Jordan said, Carmela is left worried about Tony's mental health, his moods and all that, but she can't contextualize all of it. What's she going to do? Next we see Carmela. She's going to Columbia to visit Meadow. It's the first time we're touching in on Meadow since the Noah breakup. Carmela sitting there is just very sad. She knocks. Meadow doesn't answer. She just, I've never seen her look more gloomy, depressed. You know, they picked that beautiful kind of melancholy song to underscore it. And she's just sitting there staring into space, playing with her fingers. And Meadow eventually comes out. She picks up all the stuff, goes in. Lily pointed out, Meadow doesn't even drop so much as a thank you. Just, ah, uh, I'm starved, hand out, you know. <laughs> so Carmela can't, can't even get gratitude from her from her own daughter, not to mention the piss-poor yep. attitude, piss attitude she has in general. Well, isn't, isn't Meadow being Tony in miniature in this scene in total? I mean, Carmela's handing over laundry. She's handing over food. Meadow has a bad attitude. Meadow is sleeping. Meadow is depressed. Meadow is ungrateful. It's like Carmela's getting it from every side, you know, between Tony and Meadow serving the same function, essentially, for both these people. Yeah. I love that she brings in that flyer. That's a very mom thing to do. I hope you take advantage of these opportunities. And uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, there's very, I, I wrote that there's just, I didn't get into too many specifics, but I wrote that this is very believable college age daughter banter here, dorm room banter. And uh, she kind of implies that Tony's at fault for the breakup with Noah, which while Tony's treatment of Noah was inexcusable, we all know that that's complete bullshit and that's not what happened, but Meadow's looking for, right something to, to love it she's very angry and hurt so it's understandable well, she's uh she's reassigning you know she's kind of creating her own narrative tony does this all the time yeah right uh i'm actually upset about this one thing but i'm gonna make it your fault somehow exactly you know? uh i love that i do i do want to mention this exchange i love when she's like don't rope me into whatever bullshit combinational pretext you have worked out with daddy and carmela's just like what was that last night's reading assignment <laughs> yeah <laughs> bullseye good carmela very good <laughs> She mentions she's having lunch with the dean. That kind of perks Meadow's ear. What's all that about? But anyway, very good scene. And yes, it shows that that Carmela is just the laundry, the food, the the the, the just the domestic servant essentially, even for her daughter who is now an adult. Then we get this uh, lunch sequence with Dean Ross. Find out he's a paisan. This guy, all I have to say about this scene, and I'll let you guys talk on it, it's split into two sections because uh, we're dealing with some of the uh, the Dean splices with uh, some of the other scenes. But this Dean knows his job. This Dean knows what the hell he's doing. He's He uh, has assessed the financial situation of the Sopranos very well. He's turning on the charm. Meadow's done great. Of course, I haven't met her, but all of her professors say she's wonderful. Uh, This is a smooth character. This guy is very good at what he does, which is fundraising, essentially, and um, lays it out. Tony was right. He wants 50 grand to put their name on a wall outside the student center or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. Columbia will greatly accept blood money. They're fine with that. <laughs> That's true. They're just running a different scam operation, aren't they? How different are they? Yep. And I love when Carmela tells Tony in the bedroom later, he's Italian. Jews have better food. <laughs> Which uh, my wife and I will probably uh, argue about every time that comes up because my wife is Jewish, Lily, and I'm Italian. Uh, but, you know, 
that's just it's just different you can't really compare the two there's nothing it's a it's a funny line it's a funny line yeah. you know and we've we've talked about extensively about italians and their food superiority thing complex yeah. whatever you want to call it yeah no we'll never hit an agreement on that what i what i will throw her in and the jews out there listening uh, who may be fans of our show is uh, jews definitely have better breakfast jews have better breakfast jews know how to do breakfast italians no no disagreement there yeah italians uh might have you on the dinner but we can fight. Yeah, listen, I had a, yeah, I had a bagel. <laughs> I had a, I had a bagel and locks this morning. I was in heaven and that will be the best thing I've eaten today. No, no contests, you know? Yeah. L- Lily's mom makes a kugel that is out of this world. It's, it's just really good. Oh, it's awesome. It's, yeah. Yeah. If you also, I mean, if you go to any of the authentic Jewish delis, I'm not just talking about cat cats is the most famous. We're all lucky to be kind of near the city, but these, uh, those Jewish delis, oof, you want a great lunch. Oh yeah. No, they don't <laughs> fuck around. Yeah. They don't yeah. fuck around at all. So I, I, I'll, I'll give, I'll give the due to, to the, uh, to the, uh, to, to God's chosen people on that one, but I still gotta, still gotta lean, edge it out towards the Italians. <laughs> uh, but right. yeah, Tony, but basically the gist of this is Tony is not succumbing. He quote knows too much about extortion. He promises five grand, which is what they gave to Verbum Day. Carmela says this is New York City. Columbia University, that's a slap in the face. Tony gives an answer that I would probably give, which is, oh, let him say no. <laughs> it's funny, it's realistic, but it's very, Carmel is very clearly disappointed here. Uh, there's more to this exchange, I think, than Tony perhaps even realizes as far as its importance to Carmela. Yeah, I understand Tony's hesitance. 50 grand is a lot of money, but bear in mind, this is a guy who has, quote, I don't know how many other widows on their payroll. We're going to talk about that in the next scene. But also, I, I, I remembered back, it's like, on one hand, I'm thinking 50 grand, holy shit, that's a lot, especially compared to five grand, which is what they were giving. But this is a guy who gave $75,000 to Irina just to keep yep. him off. You know, so Tony has the money. Tony can pay this. He's just being Tony. And Carmela knows that. Carmela knows how much money they have. Yeah. You know, I, I think um, it, it's also, as we will get into towards the end of the episode, the $50,000 is, is symbolic. Uh, look at the way he throws the $5,000 at Carmela. He pulls yeah. the cash off his gangster roll and yeah. drops it in the bed next to her. You do that to your wife? Just yeah. the level of disrespect there. I'm surprised that didn't create an atomic explosion. It was actually sad to me that Carmela didn't yell at him for doing that uh, yeah. because that is so just rude. Would you do that to a friend? You know, would you do that to anyone? Who should have to put up with that? You know, yeah. and you do that to your wife? That's really gross. Yeah. You know, Cor- that yep. that to me reminded me of the, the Melfi scene uh season one. Here, you want your money, here's your fucking money, right? Yeah, treating sure. a woman like a treating a woman like a, a whore. Who who would you treat this way? Right. And expect them to take it. And the fact that she doesn't do anything about it, uh, I can think of no clearer indication that this marriage is in deep, deep trouble. Well said. The next scene we get with Carm is in this driveway. I always remember this scene. There's a lot of funny moments in this little scene here. Carmela's on the phone smoking a cigarette, unusual Carmela behavior, calling Melfi's therapist, leaving a message with this Dr. Krakauer. And uh, Tony comes out. He's complaining about the level of pulp in the orange juice, and she throws the phone at him. The fuck was that for? The fight gets delayed by the arrival of AJ. I fucking die every time at this. How was your trip? It was great. They had PlayStation 2 right in the hotel room. Fucking AJ. (laughs) And Tony said, that was the sum total of your trip to your nation's capital. (laughs) Listen, that's right on. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's he uh, ninth grade? Of course. Uh, yeah. That's what I would have been doing as much as I could back then. So he throws him the OJ goes inside, you know, Carmela just gives it to him. Who knows, you know, all the money you spend and who knows how many widows you have on your payroll. You can't spend the money to make sure that your daughter is protected. As she lays it out. Tony says, I won't pay. I know too much about extortion. Mm. Rough. Great yeah. Rough, rough scene. As if the whole scene is great. Yeah, I think as Jordan said, it reflects the difficulty that their marriage is in and what Carmela's going through. Carmela recently had been talking to Meadow about Caitlin, I think, stress smoking. Yeah. So now Carmela also needing an outlet. Mm, very good. She needs. Good pull. And then we get the big scene that I'm sure we're all very excited to talk about. Uh, the, and, and also the scene that gave us the quote, which elicited our title, Carmela with Dr. Krakauer. This guy to me, wow. um, yeah, first of all, he's, I love how blunt he is, especially in a show where everybody's dancing around the truth. And also he's just, this is like an old school psychologist. This is probably like, it felt to me like, wow, this guy's a dying breed. These, these psychiatrists, psychiatrists who would just fucking give it to you. Carmelo's even shocked at one point. She says, I thought, you know, you weren't supposed to judge. And he lays on this whole thing about people want to be excused for their misdeeds because of their, you know, childhoods and all that. And uh, that's what psychiatry has become in America. Visit any shopping mall or ethnic pride parade, witness the results. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a therapist who would phrase it quite like that. But uh, the point is, this guy's a different kind of cat. I was so taken with him from moment one, just because that actor has such a great physical presence. He's an yeah. older gentleman. Um, he almost seems like a relic of like a bygone era. He seems like one with the furniture in his office. <laughs> um, so this is this is the real second opinion, right? Yeah. In the in the episode, right? This is this is where the the, the actual show gets its title from. Everything this man says is true. There's no artifice. I was actually, I wrote down that I'm actually surprised that this was Melfi's teacher uh, because he does a lot of things that for the most part, for the most part, she doesn't really practice. Melfi is much more kind uh, and absorbent and uh, self-reflective. And um, really there's a softness to Melfi that I think we all appreciate. I think, I think I would love it if my therapist was Dr. Melfi because if I had this guy you would come to some certain truths about your life so abruptly mm. that it might lead you to make some rash decisions. And Carmela takes him at face value. And it's actually like really refreshing. Uh, for once, we actually encounter a, a character in The Sopranos. They're pretty rare. Actually, it reminded me a little bit of, of um, Officer Wilmore from Another Toothpick, where the character has no bullshit about them. They have a code, they do the super function of their job and they do it super well. This man is sort of the antithesis of Dr. Kennedy, right? Who is the bad doctor. This is the good doctor. He knows exactly what his practice is. He is super precise and his surgery is exact. You told him what is wrong with you. He repeats it back to you. He affirms that indeed that is wrong and you need to do something about it. There's no dancing around it. There's no blaming all your problems on Livia, right? This is what you need to do to fix your life. And if you don't want to do that, I can't help you. And moreover, you can't pay me with blood money right? I won't accept it because that's an affront to me, right? Uh, I, I think this character is unreal. He's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And he lays it out in such a blunt way to her. Uh, to, you know, she tries to kind of say, so you're saying this, like I should learn to 
And he's just like, you're not listening. Take the children, what's left of them, and go. Mm. Oof, yeah, what, wow. a, what a way to phrase that. Um, wow. And I, I, and then he snaps right, he's right on top of it. It's like, I had to actually chuckle in the scene, but it was an uncomfortable chuckle when she's like, well, my priest says I should help him be a better man. And he just instantly, how's that going? Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> it's going so well, in fact, that she told the priest to fuck off a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you guys are right. I think this scene is pretty astounding. This character is sensational. Really simple and effective thing that The Sopranos does here. This scene starts in the middle. The scene we didn't see is when Carmela first walked in and they introduced themselves. And then she went into a description of her life and her marriage to Tony and her concern about his behavior and all that that brought her to tears. So the other thing about why this guy is, I think, the real deal is because he is in part reflecting back to her what she has said to him. He's unapologetically got his own perspective, but it's not malicious. It's not self-serving. It's the real deal. There's also not a bunch of bullshit art or pictures that he took in an African village. And his, <laughs> his space looks like Jordan's space looks to me right now. It's books because he's a reader. That's the guy. He's kind of Freudian in his outlook. And I think certainly in the vision of him. Right. Yeah. The uh, Well, and, and to your credit, calling him a reader, his his prescribed redemption method for Tony is to turn himself in, sit in his jail cell, read Dostoevsky's crime and punishment for seven years in his jail cell, and he might be redeemed. Yes. Uh, apologies to Lily, but I think this is a direct response to Melfi telling Tony to read that stupid fucking pamphlet, uh, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. This is, again, the substantive uh, format. This is the real deal. Just as I think crime and punishment is not an easy read this scene is not an easy one to take it's a lot but as we said it's the real deal yeah the character is also sort of a lightning rod for us because as paul has said often and i so agree this is a show ostensibly about people who are liars right they say one thing they do another there's a lie in every scene People are always constantly intentionally misrepresenting themselves or trying to get one over on somebody. So when you finally have a character like Dr. Krakauer, it's like time stops while you're watching this scene because you're like, oh my God, finally a character who just speaks exactly what is on his mind and says the truth to this woman in a way that really only like the viewer could, right? Or maybe someone who's like writing this show. It's almost like the voice of God, which is... Again, what Carmela has been looking for. And, and in a kind of cynical way, I, I take the last line he gives very cynically because I don't think Krakauer believes that Carmela is going to take his advice, get the kids and go. But he mm. kind of gives her this warning as if to say, whatever decision you make from here, remember, you know, the, I, I love it. The one thing you can never say that you haven't been told. Mm -hmm. Oof, this guy is just you know <laughs> he's he's hardcore man but maybe someday carmela will look back on this conversation you know this is not something she'll ever forget i think yeah mm -hmm. i think and, you're right uh, i think that as you say chris this is impactful and it's the real deal and maybe he doesn't quite believe that she'll take that advice but he's still laying it down and as jordan said this is the true second opinion uh this character also reminded me of will moore uh, the, the black officer from a couple episodes ago. Right. 
from another toothpick yeah mm-hmm. yeah who's a sort of like a, challenges one of our main characters in a certain way it's hard to project things onto him because he's sort of enigmatic um and has a an independence um also this season in effect opened with tony saying that this guy wasn't good enough to be hanging out with his daughter because he was black and jewish neither of those things were the problem with that kid the problem with noah was and is that he's a self-serving uh sack of shit member of the professional managerial class like dr kennedy and now in the course <laughs> of the season a black character and a jewish character have both refused on principle to take tony's money not an accident yeah mm-hmm. you're so right great catch paul love that and yeah, this leads us into the last sequence. Carmela has been struck to the depression we've come to know from some of the other characters in this show. Finally, uh, she's had enough of the serving up the pasta and then doing the laundry. She's just curled up in a ball on the couch. What else can you really do after that fucking appointment? Um, I've had therapy appointments that are way less brutal than this one that have done that to me. So <laughs> I, can, I can certainly uh, sympathize. She drops this line that's very darkly funny. Everyone else in this family sleeps all day. I thought I'd try it. Yeah. Tony, behind the eight ball here, again, just reflecting further his level of neglect. No clue she's done any of this. Probably didn't, you know, uh, says, you know, maybe if you want to see a therapist of your own. And she, again, refuses, you know, I don't have time. You know, she's plenty of time, but she she just refuses it. Uh, and Carmela drops the bomb on Tony. She's pledged the 50 grand. And yeah. Tony's like, all right, maybe I'll go up to 10, but Carm, I'm not doing it. And she just leans over. And, you know, again, when she really knows, when she really presses, Carmela can get what she wants. And she knows this. And she says, she, she kind of gives it to Tony very straight here. Like, you need to do this for me today. I want, you need to do something nice. This is what I want. And Tony knows what that means. And as much as it's nice to see Tony cave and give, give, give the 50 grand up and the two of them to kind of walk out together, perhaps getting ready to go out for a nice meal. I can't help but feel like as the lights close on this episode is this kind of transactional thing that just occurred here, all that's holding this marriage together at this point, the fact that Carmela can provide for her daughter in this way, is that all there is? Yeah. Any thoughts on this final scene and final thoughts on the episode as a whole? Uh, Yeah, Uh, I will say that uh, for me, as much as this is also a junior episode, this is, of course, very much a a Carmela episode. And it allows us to check in on her in a way that um, is going to be the fulcrum to move her forward into developing her more as a character into seeking out her own happiness. And I think that's clear right from Second Opinion. what you said about the transactional nature of their marriage, we've brought up before in, in previous seasons of this show. It is sad. I do think it is what is holding the marriage together with the addition of mob wives have this responsibility to remain in the marriage. And I think it's you know part of the business arrangement between mob wives and their mob husbands. It's in parts a kind of omerta. It's in parts kind of a religion. And Carmela has finally been led to the precipice of all, you know, with, with all she's suffered with, and now with, with the advice of Krakauer to like this moment where, okay, I've never seriously considered it before, but now I'm thinking of it. You know, uh, Krakauer says, listen, you've mentioned divorce. You, you brought that word in here. 
it's on Carmela's mind. I think we can take her more credibly that whatever the transactional nature of her marriage has been to this point, the transaction is no longer working for her. She does not feel like she's being paid equitably in this deal with the devil. Um, and the love, the thing that really holds any marriage together, seems to be absent. I don't see this as a loving marriage anymore. I, I can't do any better than that. That is really well said. Uh, I, I guess I would only add uh, with a bit of cheek that I would have hated to have been an Emmy voter the year that this episode came out <laughs> and vote in the category where Edie Falco submitted this episode and Lorraine Bracco submitted employee of mm. um, I would have been I would have smoked a whole pack of cigarettes at the night that I had. <laughs> um, really terrific work uh, as Jordan just elucidated in the writing itself and then in the performance also the needle drop I just gotta say even when songs aren't particularly to my taste yeah it just looks like job they're so well done I think this song here is called Black the the use of black books is so great the way it's first used at columbia and then to play the episode out just got to give a shout out as always david chase does great work i i agree guys and i just great episode uh a lot going on here a lot of laughs a lot of heart sad journey for carmilla and for junior not a very again we're, we're getting a theme here in season three none of these are particularly optimistic episodes but uh, they certainly serve their function dramatically. I have one last little question just about season structure, uh, and then I want to close us out. But just a quick question here coming off of university. How do you guys feel, just a personal opinion, again, not a reflection on the actual episode we were given, but how do you feel about the fact that we touched down barely at all on this Ralphie situation that we closed out the university? It was such a bombastic close to the last episode, and we get, like, a couple throwaway lines like you know junior asks about bad blood between tony and ralphie and he just kind of dismisses it thoughts on tactically just not even barely touching it this episode i think the show um asks a lot of its viewers and i think that's one of the things that i like the most about it it's like you come back the following week and you're chomping at the bit to see the continuation of the tension between tony and ralphie and how it's going to be resolved but it doesn't give it to you instead it asks you to consider the other side of what's going on while all that is happening. And in doing so, it creates just a richer world uh, within this TV series. Um, I, I think that's certainly intentional, and I think it only seeks to enrich the storyline. I guess as a viewer, you could get a little frustrated that the only you know follow-up you get to the Ralphie situation is this little off-the-cuff comment from from Junior and, and very brief discussion. But it actually does this interesting thing where it, it actually prolongs the tension because... It's something that you're thinking about in the back of your mind while all this is happening. And honestly, how lifelike is that, right? Where, yeah, you have this thing that's really important. It's going on. It's an ongoing situation. But you still have to live the whole rest of your life. Only on television would we be able to deal with Ralphie every week, right, and, yeah. and solve that problem immediately. But because The Sopranos tells a rich story about multiple people and how Tony touches down in each of their lives, we can't get that satisfaction, and really, neither can he, because he has to deal with the obstacles of living the rest of his life, something we all struggle to do. And well, we'll get to it in our next episode, I suspect. I uh, can't wait to talk about the next one with you guys. But uh, that, this has been Second Opinion. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Manzini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will be back next time. Have you heard the good news? He is risen. Super the fuck, game. <laughs>